about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardships we suffered in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, in our hearts we felt the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us, as you help us by your prayers. Then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favour granted us in answer to the prayers of many. And then continuing on chapter 12, starting at verse 7. To keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Good morning. Great to be with you. How about we say a prayer? As we get going this morning, man, it's really wet on the stage here. <laughs> Hopefully I won't slip over. Uh, loving Heavenly Father, you've gathered us here today for the sake of your glory, that we might better understand and know uh, the love of your Son, and the future that awaits us in his presence. Father, we pray that by your Spirit this morning, you would help us long to be with him, and long to be like him. Amen. We've been thinking this weekend about how God is at work transforming us. Our theme has not been how to transform your life, but how God is that already at work in your life, turning you into the likeness of Jesus Christ through the power of his spirit. And yesterday, we kind of looked at two different aspects to that. On the one hand, we thought about how the Holy Spirit changes us by helping us behold Christ in our hearts. And the bigger the vision of God in our hearts, of Jesus in our hearts, the more we become like him on the one hand. And on the other hand, the Holy Spirit leads us into trouble in life, real trouble, so that we actually look like Christ crucified. He's both pressing things on our life and pressing things in our heart. And this morning, I want to kind of gather those two things together. And if you have your outline from yesterday, it will be kind of helpful. I kind of changed a little bit what I'm doing, so sorry about that. Um, 
Uh, we're going to bring those two things together, and I really just want to ask the question, well, just how, how does that actually work in a real life? You know, in your real life, which is a, a string together set of circumstances in Sydney, or maybe you started in South Africa, or, in, or you know, in Ireland, or somewhere else, full of events and people and time and failures and joys, how through the mess of your story can you make sense of this work of transformation that God has been doing? How does this all work in a real life? And as we walk along today, I wanted to hold in my other hand as we looked at the scriptures in 2 Corinthians, the life of my favorite dead friend, as I called him yesterday, Soren Abe Kierkegaard, who was born in 1813 in Copenhagen. Now, I just want to tell you a little bit about his life so we can hold it in our hands as we walk through today. Now, Soren's life was actually a little bit of a mess, really. Uh, he grew up with a father who was extremely depressed his entire life, though a very successful merchant. And Michael, his, uh, Kierkegaard's father, appears to have had some sort of family secret that basically haunted and crushed him his entire life. We think it might have been an illegitimate child. Uh, as a result, uh, Soren himself grew up under this immense depression. He says, in addition to my other numerous acquaintances, I have one more intimate confidant. My depression is the most faithful mistress I have known. No wonder then that I return the love. So he grew up under this immense depression as a young child. And as a young child also, he fell out of a tree. And that might not sound like much to you, but he, it left his spine deformed. So on the le- these are pictures of him in the local newspaper, uh, uh, basically paying him out. Uh, on, on the one hand, you kind of have this kind of gangly cur- curved spine thing happening. Uh, and on the other hand, the upright one, if you look at the bottom, uh, you see how his trousers are different lengths? He was world-renowned in Copenhagen for having misshapen trousers and a curved-in back. He basically looked a bit gangly uh, and was just a bit kind of physically broken his whole life. Then there came Regina, uh, the girl he tried really, really hard to woo and got engaged to, and then out of nowhere broke off the engagement, leaving her heartbroken and completely bewildered for a number of years. As it turns out, what happened is Soren decided that he was too depressed and too messed up to He couldn't possibly invite a wife into the life that he had. And so he broke off his engagement. He then went on to write a series of books which came under attack. He increasingly attacked uh, everyone in uh, Danish society, bishops and politicians uh, and ministers, decrying their Christianity as empty and gospelless. At his graveside, after he died at the age of 42, his niece got up and started decrying the priest who buried him for having such an orderly service. She said, shouldn't have someone who so hated the world, should he have been buried with such respect? What do you do with a life like that? (laughs) You know, a life that's gone from misadventure to misadventure from a stern legalistic upbringing to a deep melancholy to a broken engagement to a kind of messy end. 
What is God up to in a life like that? What is God up to in a life like yours? Full of its own strange twists and turns. Well, let's have a look at this chapter in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I'll go to the other two texts as examples, but we'll make our home in chapter 4. And really what I want to see from this passage is really how the Holy Spirit, through all the circumstances of our lives, through the story that's happened in all the ways, in all the parts, he uses every single piece of that story to renew us and make us like Jesus. Let me show you how that works. My first point is this. I've got two points and two examples. The first point is this. The Holy Spirit is at work renewing us through the circumstances of our lives. The Holy Spirit is at work renewing us through the circumstances of our lives. Now, if you go to uh, uh, verse 16 of chapter 4, you get Paul saying, Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. Someone mentioned that verse, Karen, just before, prophetically, knowing that we'd actually bring it up. Don't know how you knew that. There you go. Um, But the therefore is kind of a summing up moment in Paul's argument. He's laid out two halves to his argument. He said to the Corinthians that the Spirit is wonderfully at work in his ministry, and yet his life is a complete mess because he images Christ crucified. And he's kind of bringing those two things together and says the reason why we don't lose heart in this messy ministry we have is that though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. So what Paul's saying is that there are two things happening parallel in his life at the same time. The two things he's already spoken about. On the one hand, his life looks like Christ crucified. The word wasting away is the word for decay. Literally, he's saying, my body is decaying, which we all are, let's be honest. We're all on a journey to the grave. Outwardly, I'm being wasted away. Outwardly, I am on a slow march toward my own death. And yet, inwardly, by the Holy Spirit, I am on a low, long, slow march to eternal life. The two things in parallel. The inwardly, I think, is supposed to parallel what he said at the end of chapter 3, this idea that by the power of the Spirit, we are beholding Jesus and becoming like him with ever-increasing glory. This idea of inwardly, we know more of Christ and become like him day by day. That's the inward thing that's happening here. And basically what we start with is Paul's confidence that despite the fact that he is wasting away, the Holy Spirit is day by day doing something. Day by day renewing him after the image of Jesus, even when he can't see it. He does not lose heart because he knows the Spirit is at work in him. But then he adds a layer of logic to it as well. In the next verse, he says, For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Now, when Paul says light and momentary troubles, let's talk about what he means. 
He means being almost stoned to death, being shipwrecked, being hunted from city to city, being thrown out of cities, being under threat all of his life, being filled with constant anxiety for God's people and God's church. You get all that from chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians. What he calls light and momentary, you would call catastrophic and, you know, just like unbearable. Yet he has the audacity to call the outward wasting away of himself light and momentary in comparison to the eternal glory that's happening as well. What's he doing here? Well, the the Jewish way of understanding glory, the word for glory in Hebrew, uh, is the word for weightiness. You could call something glorious just because it has large weight to it. A whale would be glorious because of its heaviness. And what he's saying is, if you hold my outward and my inward in your hands, the inward work of God that he is doing, that he will ultimately bring about far outweighs, outstrips, outstretches, far surpasses anything I face in the difficulty of this life. Paul says the reason why we don't lose heart is because what God will bring about in the end is far outweighed by what we face in the present. But he goes even further than that. Did you see in verse 7, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us. It's not that they're in parallel. That's not the logic of that sentence. The logic of the sentence is that the light and momentary troubles are producing the eternal glory. That somehow the Holy Spirit isn't at work in Paul despite his life, but through his life. It is exactly the circumstances where he finds himself wasting away that he is being renewed. You see, the Holy Spirit uses the messy, actual, concrete circumstances of your life to make you new, to renew you day by day. He is at work through your circumstances, not despite them. And this is actually exactly what Soren Kierkegaard says, thinking about his own life. Soren's most famous for this quote. Life is lived forwards, but understood backwards. This idea that when you're walking through life, you can't understand what's happening, but when you look back, you might see a bit more. And looking back over his life in a late reflection, he says this, an observer will see how everything was set in motion in my life. I had a thought in the flesh, intellectual endowments, education in abundance, an enormous development as an observer, a truly rare Christian upbringing. And as I now see it, it seems as if from the very first moment, another power had been watching this. And in this way, I became an author. Siren looks back over his life, at his father, at his melancholy, at, his, uh, at the Christian upbringing he got, at falling out of a tree, at the breakup of his engagement. And he looked back over all those things. And he says, it's almost like the Holy Spirit was moving through all of these things and and set me up for this one time to be an author. 
And he was moving through all of these circumstances to bring about something glorious for the sake of other people in me. Someone looking back over his life saw the Holy Spirit working through the difficulty of his circumstances to use him powerfully. Now that's a big thought. And to unpack it, I want to take you to two places in 2 Corinthians where Paul unpacks it for you. So we're not depending upon Soren, we're depending upon Paul and God's word. Because twice in 2 Corinthians, at the bookends of 2 Corinthians, Paul describes two experiences where precisely God is renewing him through his circumstances. So jump over to chapter 1 and go to verse 8. And here's the first thing he talks about. And I call this example a crushing crisis. And what he begins to describe to the Corinthians without naming details in particular about a hardship that they faced in Asia, perhaps around Ephesus in Turkey. And he says, we were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. Paul talks about a circumstance, and and the words he uses to describe them, the word hardship he uses in verse 8, is the word for kind of like being constricted, like a python wrapping around you, kind of pressing you in. And then he goes on in verse uh, verse 8 to talk about this, this great pressure that was far beyond his ability to endure, this kind of... We don't really know what happened. He might have been persecuted. He might have been thrown in prison. He might have been uh, almost in a situation where he was about to be executed by a crowd, perhaps. We don't really know. But he describes it psychologically as a being in a position of being utterly constricted and pressed in by the circumstances, so that in verse 9, indeed, in our hearts, we felt the sentence of death. Paul felt whatever was happening, that his life was going to end at that moment, that God had led him to this point to die, probably at the hands of others persecuting him. Outwardly wasting away, remember, outwardly wasting away. How does God renew him? But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Holy Spirit led Paul into a circumstance where the only human outcome was death. He was forced to face the very fragileness of his humanity. Why? Well, it was then that the only recourse, the only option he had was to trust that God could raise him again from the dead. It's like in the circumstance, in in that moment in his life, the, the reality of the resurrection was real in a way it could not have been without the circumstance. You don't need the resurrection until you're on your deathbed and you know it is the only way you will see life again. And so by leading him through this circumstance, of, and he's outwardly wasting away, God is inwardly renewing him, giving him a bigger vision of his glory and his goodness in the gospel. Helping him rest more securely, not in himself, but in the God who raises the dead. In this crushing 
crisis, God is renewing Paul's vision of his goodness. You know these circumstances, don't you? You know those times when when life presses in on you and it forces you to have a bigger vision of who God is. This is exactly Soren's experience. In the midst of his depression, he says, as for the fact that I have needed God's love and how constantly I've needed it, day after day, year after year, to recall this to mind and to report it exactly. I don't need the aid of memory or recollections or journals or diaries. So vividly, so feelingly do I live it over in this moment. Having been isolated completely by his depression and by society, Soren found that God's love never abandoned him. And the press of the outside world made the glory of God's love shine all the brighter. See, the Holy Spirit will lead us through crushing crises to deepen our sense of the love that our Father has for us and His power to renew us and resurrect us. That's the first example. Let me take you to the second one real quick. Uh, Chapter 12, this is the other example. And this is kind of at the other end. On, On the one hand, you have this kind of momentary crisis, and this is what I would call a niggling thorn. The famous thorn passage of Paul's writing. And in this, he describes that God gives him a thorn in the flesh, which he calls a messenger of Satan to torment him. Which just makes the whole picture more messy, doesn't it? It's not just God giving him the thorn, but somehow Satan's giving him the thorn. Complex spiritual reality behind what he's facing. He says three times in verse 8, I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. How real is that? We don't know what the thorn was. Could have been some sort of physical ailment. Could have been some psychological issue. Could have been some sort of, uh, you know, some annoying person in his life. Take this annoying person away. (laughs) But how real is it that he comes to Jesus and says, you should really, really, really take this away. Do you know someone else who pleaded three times for something to be taken away? Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Who too honestly asked God if there was any other way to save us than to take the cup of God's wrath. Paul takes up the honesty of Jesus. You you can take up this honesty too. It's not like you just have to walk into circumstances in life and go, oh, well, God's going to renew me in this. This will be fine. That's not what Paul does. He walks in and says, this thorn's really sore. It's really awful. You should take it away. In the midst of these circumstances in life, we're not supposed to just kind of uh, trust that God is doing things, but to honestly own the fact that things are hard. But Jesus' response is remarkable. He comes to him and says, well, my grace, in verse 9, is sufficient for you. And my power is made perfect in weakness. Jesus says, do you know what you don't need? A change in circumstance. Do you know what you do need? A little bit more of me. 
This is a very personal verse for me. I shared this in a sermon a few years ago, I think. Um, when, I, when I was in my first year of Bible college, uh, Cass got very sick, my wife. And she remained sick for quite a long time. And in the first few months, I was fine. Like I'm a fixer from way back, so someone gets sick, I think, well, I'm going to fix this. Go to the doctor and we'll fix this. Uh, and when a few months turned into a year and then a year into a two and a year into three, and I was studying really hard at college, and I was at a church where I was preaching a lot, doing a lot of ministry, and I got to the point where I couldn't fix anything. I had no sense when Cass was ever going to get better. I was feeling re- really pressed in by that. I was verging on the edge of kind of this stress breakdown in my heart on the basis of having to carry what was happening. And I ended up uh, in a mid-year retreat in my ordination path, uh, seriously wondering whether I could actually be a pastor at all. Because I thought, God, I can't love my wife and love the church. And so I guess I follow my covenant with my wife and leave this behind. It was on that camp that someone picked up this text and they said, you know what, as a pastor, do you, know, do you know what you really, really need? Things that make you desperately weak and needy. You really need the circumstances in your life that bring you low, that bring you to the edge of yourself. Because it's in the midst of circumstances like that that you begin to experience the power of Jesus in a whole other way. What God did in me in that moment is, it's like he said to me, how's all your strength going, buddy? How about you stop thinking about you when you start thinking about me? And really, he was renewing me. Because he didn't want me to walk out as a pastor, trusting in myself, he wanted me weak, so I trusted his power. Paul, as he walks out of this thorn scenario, has a whole change of perspective. He says, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses. I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You see, for Paul, the circumstances that leave you weak and needy and desperate are the places that the Spirit often uses as the means to growing your vision of Jesus the most. And I love Paul's vision. And this has been my experience of people. See, God is at work in every single one of your lives. But it's just that some people are, are looking out for it more than others. And what Paul says is whenever I see things pressing in on me that make me weak, I see them as situations in which my vision of Jesus and his power and his strength will grow. He has a vision that through the circumstances of life, God will renew him day by day by enlarging 
his vision of who Jesus is. That's how this works in Paul's life. But let me finish with this point. Slightly different. Go back to chapter 4. Because uh, you might be sitting in the pew today thinking, well, this is great, but I don't really see how this is happening in my life. Nor can I really do the light looking backwards over my life and really understand what I see God doing either. And you know what Paul doesn't say in verse 18 of chapter 4? He doesn't say, fix your eyes on what God is doing in the present. He says, so we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. We know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. You see, and this is my second point, You don't need to have confidence that you can see what God is doing in the present. Your confidence should be in the fact that what the Holy Spirit has begun, he will complete, even when you can't see it. What the Holy Spirit has begun, he will complete, even if you can't see it. Paul says in the midst of all this mess of us being renewed through our circumstances, this inward renewal, day by day, he fixes his eyes on what is unseen. He doesn't just mean ethereal realities up there. He means verse 5, that one day, as Megan so beautifully showed us before, that we will get an eternal house, a new body, a resurrected self, a completely transformed self. This house is not built by human hands in verse 1. It's a house in which what is mortal is swallowed up by life in verse 4. In verse 5, you were made for that very purpose. What the Holy Spirit has begun in you, he will complete on the day of your resurrection. On that day when he houses you in your eternal home in a body like the Lord Jesus, when you will finally be like the Lord Jesus. He says, God has given us the Spirit as a deposit, a guaranteeing what is to come. That your little experiences of Jesus in the circumstances of your life right now are just a little taste, just a little slither just a little vague picture of what it will be like to be raised to life and live in the presence of Jesus and be like him. What the Holy Spirit has begun in your heart, he will one day complete by bringing you into the presence of Jesus. You see, the Father will one day make us like his Son through the power of the Spirit by resurrecting us into the presence of Jesus. So friend, while I want you to be confident 
that God is renewing you through the circumstances of your life. And I want you to look at the, cir- the real circumstances of your life as places where the Holy Spirit is enlarging your vision of God. Your confidence in the end and where your eyes should be fixed is on that future day that the Holy Spirit is directing you toward when you'll be raised and live with Jesus and each other forever. Your confidence and your heart and your eyes need to be fixed on that day. I think this is in the end, as I finish, how Soren dealt with his life too. Uh, we have his gravestone, and he asked this really peculiar poem to be put on it. Oh, missed that. He says this on his gravestone. In a little while, I shall have won, which is probably a bit facetious. Then the entire battle will disappear at once. Then I may rest in halls of roses and unceasingly and unceasingly speak with my Jesus. Ultimately, in the midst of the troubled life that Solomon led, the deposit of the Holy Spirit grew a longing in his heart to one day be with his Savior to be transformed in his presence. And it's to the extent that you realize that the earthly tent of Jesus' body was ripped to shreds, that you might have an eternal house in his presence. That on the cross, he took away everything that takes your future away from you that your heart will long for the day to speak to him face to face. And so let the Spirit of God our Father ignite in you not just thoughts about Jesus, but a longing to know him. Let me pray. Oh God, our Father, we confess to be in lives that we don't understand where vaguely and at time to times we see circumstances and places and pieces of the things that you're doing. And yet we stand confidently on your, wor- your word today and say that we, we see that your purposes cannot be stopped, that your Holy Spirit within us will renew us through the circumstances of our lives and ultimately lead us to glory. And we pray ignite in us that longing for Jesus, that longing to be with him, that longing to know him, that longing to be like him. For the sake and glory of God our Father. Amen.
Thanks for listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church Podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.